Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates current, classic, and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 network. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome our guest tonight, author and film historian Allison Maycor, whose book, The Making of the Best Years of Our Lives, is now out from the University of Texas Press. And you should all go out and buy it immediately. And I will tell you why during this podcast. Welcome, Allison. Thanks so much. Hi, Steve. Hi, Ben. It's good to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. Um, the, for the listeners, I, I talk about a lot of classic movies. It's kind of what I'm made of. Uh, uh, it's just uh, a passion that goes way back to when I was a little kid living across the street from a movie theater and going every Saturday and just doing all that. And it's just a thrill for me to learn that I have a kindred spirit and a film historian who loves a movie that I absolutely, absolutely cherish. And Allison, I can't, I mean, if I could jump up for joy, I would jump up and I'd probably break my leg now. But, <laughs> but I, I, I can't tell you how excited I was to hear about your book. Now, the book is about the making of the best years of our lives. For you listeners who have no idea what that is, we're going to tell you about it tonight so that after this podcast, I have no doubt that if you have not seen it, you will run out and find it because there are certain movies that you have to see before you pass on into the great beyond. And I'm not sure if they have DVDs or DVRs in the great beyond. So you better get to this before the getting's good. Cause I don't know what the power sources are in heaven. <laughs> you know what's in heaven is a criterion version of this movie. That's what's in heaven. Well, that would be nice. That, that would be, be nice. that would be very nice. Um, well, I consider your book a forensic study of this movie. And it's it's kind of close to my heart because that's what I started my career doing back in the day. I was a staff writer for Cine Fantastique up in Chicago. Oh God, amazing. And, and I was doing similar analysis of 1950s science fiction films, tracking down everybody I could find. And I guess one of the first challenges you had in writing this book about a film released in 1946 was that nobody was around anymore. Yeah, and, and I mean, my first book was a history of the Austin film scene and I interviewed more than 200 people for it. So I don't necessarily think of it as a challenge that no one's really around anymore because the archival material was wonderful and that's sort of my happy place is just sitting with all of the stuff and going through it. Um, and, and having people's letters, you know? And, and I did get to talk to William Wyler's um, kids who are, you know, I don't think they'd consider themselves kids, but his children, his adult children. Um, but really Catherine was the only one, you know, who was old enough. Her sister Judy was in, they're both in the movie in a great little part. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there just really weren't a lot of people around. Now, let, uh, let's talk about you. You, uh, um, I, you are in Texas now, right? I am. In, are, you in a, are you a Texan or are you from Boston? No, no, no. I'm uh, born and bred New Jerseyan. Oh. Um, <clears throat> I moved here, though, about 30 years ago for grad school. I decided in college I had great 
film professors who inspired me to become a film professor. So I came down to Texas, um, which has a great radio TV film department to get my master's, which is the first step before you get a PhD. Um, and uh, that is when I first saw Best Years of Our Lives was in one of my early film classes. Um, and you know, my job training was to basically see everything, see all the, you know, quote unquote, great stuff. So I could teach about it. And, you know, not everything was my cup of tea. But when I saw this movie, I was just, I remember sitting up in my seat, like we were in a classroom, maybe it had, I think we were seeing this projected. And just looking around at my classmates, you know, like, oh, my God, are you feeling what I'm feeling here? Because it really seemed so modern to me. Um, I knew the year in which it came out. And I think I saw it, you know, probably in the early nineties, uh, maybe 90, 91. And it just really felt so, so now, you know, it still feels that way to me, just the way it handles uh, tough subjects, um, the way the characters talk to each other. Now, as a little kid uh, in growing up in New Jersey, were you a frequent film goer? goer? Did you, were you not a film goer? No, um, my big sort of film experience, my dad was an engineer and he took, um, I have two sisters and he took my older sister and I to see a re-release of This Is Cinerama. That was his idea of like a good time. And um, that part where the, the roller coaster gets to the top. My mom had made us popcorn and brown, you know, like lunch bags. And I just vomited into my popcorn. <laughs> and I'm sure my dad was like, oh, Jesus, now we have to go, you know? So we were not big film goers, but I remember watching the Oscars a lot and, and being just sort of captivated by movies. Um, we lived, you know, we got WOR, which or I think that was the TV station where we had a lot of Saturday afternoon movies, you know, so occasionally I'd see stuff there. But really it was college for me that just sort of, I took all these film classes. I was, I went to Notre Dame. It was, you know, pretty small at that time. And um, we saw all our movies in the auditorium of the art museum and it was just a great, experience. I really fell in love with movies in college. So a number of our listeners are not knowledge, are not are not knowledgeable about this movie. So how would you start out and describe this movie in terms of what it's about? This is a movie, I always say this is a movie about um, readjustment. Um, it begins when three veterans uh, from different branches of the military meet when they catch the same transport plane back to their hometown. Um, you've got Fred, played by Dana Andrews, who's an Air Force captain. He's heading home to his wife, Marie, whom he met married just shortly before he headed overseas. You have Homer Parrish, played by um, Harold Russell. Uh, in his real first big screen Hollywood role. Um, he's a sailor who lost both of his hands when his aircraft carrier was torpedoed. And then you have um, Al Stevenson, who's a sergeant 
played by Frederick March, and he is very eager to return to his wife of many years, Millie, played by Myrna Loy. Um, but he's not too thrilled about going back to his job as a, at the bank. Um, and, you know, all of the characters have, they have the, um, you know, they're worried about coming home, um, but they've also got other worries too. You know, Fred can't find a decent job, which he thought would be, you know, pretty easy to do. He also has war trauma, you know, which today we call PTSD. Um, Homer's struggling to find a purpose and Al develops a drinking problem um, as a way to deal with his disillusionment. And then you've got this relationship, this blossoming relationship between Fred and Al's adult daughter, daughter Peggy, played by Teresa Wright, and that threatens his marriage, which is already pretty rocky, and it also uh, complicates his friendship with Al. And I always say the film ends with a wedding. I don't like to totally give things away. And that brings together the three veterans. And in, in my view, it offers a hopeful but very realistic path forward for each of the characters. Um, well, I'm glad you used the word realistic because I think the one thing about this movie that is so compelling is that it seems very real. Mm -hmm. uh, William Wyler, one of our most uh, illustrious directors, uh, brought so much uh, detail to his films on so many levels. The idea of phoning in directing does not exist in a William Wyler film. And consequently, consequently, many of his films are very honored films. And this won the best picture that year. What impact do you think, uh, for you personally, do you think Wyler had by being making this movie? Well, I mean, I just think there are so many layers to that impact. There's the, the sort of the personal satisfaction that he himself got from, I think, you know, making a movie. He had been injured during the war. He lost hearing initially in both ears, eventually came back in his left ear. Um, and I think, you know, he, he needed to prove to himself. He felt like he needed to prove to the industry that he could make another film. He had won an Oscar for Mrs. Miniver um, before he left for the war. So imagine that, um, you know, the stakes on that coming back from the war and, and starting to make another film and knowing you had won an Oscar on your last one. Um, so that's like, there's a personal status, personal stake, there's the professional stake. Um, and I think as, as an injured veteran, he wanted to make a movie that that was going to say something. I mean, I think he felt that way about all his movies, um, but especially for this one, uh, I think he thought, I, I got the sense from the correspondence he had with Harold Russell that he felt a responsibility to, to him. Um, you know, some people say, have said to me, oh, how can you say, you know, this was really his first, he, he was a non-actor. I mean, he had made a military training film you know, and yes, it had played in theaters, but he wasn't an actor. I mean, he was somebody who was brought in to act alongside veteran actors like Frederick March and Myrna Loy. Um, so I think you've got that layer, that impact layer too. And for Harold Russell, um, somebody I think personally who was wondering, you know, what am, what am I going to do? I lost my hands during the war. What is my, he went to war in a way to kind of reinvent his life. 
And then he has to come home and reinvent it again in a different way. Um, and he developed a career as an advocate, a you know, very important one, I think, for veterans, for disabled veterans. Um, so that's, that's an impact. You know, I just see this film being so important on so many levels. And that's really what drove me to write about it. Um, I mean, yes, it plays on Turner Classic Movies a lot and people a lot of people do know this film, but I have to say, you know, I ran into plenty of people who sort of their eyes would get a little glazed and they'd say, best year so far lies. I think I've heard of it. So for me, um, especially as, as a, when I was teaching at the college level, I would see how my students reacted to this film. I felt like there was an opportunity to really bring this film to new generations who might not be familiar with it. And that was an impetus for me too in writing about it. Do you find it a challenge these days to get young people to watch a black and white film? Um, I think sometimes it depends really on, on the student, on the person, on the young person. Um, I think if they get into the movie, then they get past the black and white hurdle. Um, for, for me, when I first watched it, and I think like you, I probably caught it. Well, you saw it in a film class on the big screen. I probably caught it on a Saturday afternoon with 9,000 commercials, which of course, <laughs> before TCM, long before TCM. And um, I think that it appealed to me on two immediate levels. First of all, it opened up a, a an area of the war that I had no idea existed. You know, I'd seen a thousand World War II movies about fighting, mm -hmm. but very few about what happens when the soldiers come home. And these three actors, Dana Andrews, Frederick March, and Harold Russell were so charismatic mm -hmm. and their situations were so amazing. One of the first scenes in the movie, which we all just treasure, is Al Stevenson comes home to his apartment building. He's kind of a He's a bank. He's a former banker. So unlike Fred and and Homer, he's coming up to a big, classy apartment building in mid city, and uh, he, he's got an elevator in his building. Right. And uh, I love the fact when he walks in, uh, the the person running the, uh, the desk at his apartment building looks at him like he's some lower edge thing. You're Al Stevenson. And Al says, Sergeant Stevenson, what'd you expect? A four-star general? <laughs> it's, and it's a great moment. But then when he gets upstairs, now this is a guy who's been away from his family for probably three years. He hasn't seen them. He's going into his apartment. He puts his gear down on the floor, knocks on the door. His daughter comes to the, the door, Teresa Wright, Peggy. And he kind of shushes her because he wants to surprise the mom. Myrna Loy and the the I know in reading your book it was fascinating to learn that this was based on 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 Willie Wyler seeing his wife after they've been separated for a long time as well but it's such I think it was my mother who was a huge film buff my mm -hmm. I credit a lot of my interest in classic films to my mother who saw everything and remembered everything and loved this movie and that that sequence just sets the tone for the whole movie in terms of your emotion. You're already invested in these characters. Because one of the things I found is 
we don't know anything about what happened to the soldiers and sailors and airmen when they came home because it was very seldom dramatized. Mm -hmm. I mean, after you've been gone for three years, what's it like to, to, to go back? There's that great line in the movie, the three of them are in the, 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 um, the nose of the B-17, which is arriving on, in Boone City. And Fred looks out the window and sees the golf course and says, people playing golf like nothing ever happened. Yeah. And you can imagine what the average person thought of like. And those are little detailed observations that I have to give Robert Sherwood, the screenwriter, credit for showing that. Yeah, and I, I, but I think too, you know, Sherwood worked closely with Weiler. Um, Sherwood had been involved in the war, you know, writing speeches and Office of War information, but he felt like this, what that wasn't his war, you know, his war had happened earlier. So I think he deferred to Weiler and to um, Russell and others, you know, to kind of infuse the script with some of their experiences. I mean, he spent time talking to Harold Russell and to Weiler. I mean, Weiler really, I think, convinced Sherwood. I mean, Sherwood says as much because he really put Sam Goldwyn off in the summer of 45 and just said, no, I wanna I want to do something escapist. I, I'm, I'm not interested. I think this subject matter will be out of date. Um, and in fact, there were other films, you know, about what we call PTSD um, most notably, I think, till the end of time, that beat best years to the theater. But as Life magazine said, you know, best years was the first good big movie to deal with this subject in 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 this way. And I think that helps set it apart. Sure, sure. Um, it's interesting um, reading in your book about the fact uh, that this all started when Francis Goldwyn found this story in, in uh, Time Magazine about yeah. returning veterans. And I guess Sam Goldwyn, a very prominent producer at that time, very successful producer, and certainly someone who had worked with Weiler, uh, commissioned McKinley Cantor, who I remember as a writer growing up, because he wrote a lot of children's books as well as adult books. Mm -hmm. I remember reading some of his books on the Civil War. <clears throat> I found it interesting. Now you don't get too heavily into it, but do you have any idea why McKinley Cantor wrote the book in verse? Um, no, and I couldn't find a lot about that, honestly. You know, he did a ton of interviews, and especially after the film came out. He, you know, I think his his uh the lip service he was paying to the film, sort of the tide turned, and he was pissed that his, you know, book wasn't featured more prominently in the credits. Um, so then he started bad-mouthing the film and then there was all this back and forth between Goldwyn's executives, like, what are we gonna do about this guy? But um, yeah, it was an interesting choice. And, you know, Goldwyn really sort of said, you write the, write the book that you think needs to be written. And I guess he did. And, you know, um, it's been a few years since I've read the book but I was, I was looking through it not too long ago and it's just a different beast, you know? And, and I know that there was somebody who was like, you should have talked more about the book. And I was like, you know, I'm writing about the movie and the book was important, but it was not, that book I don't think was gonna get made 
as it was and not and, and the blank verse wasn't the only problem you know it was it was that there were other issues tonality that kind of thing um for, for the listeners we should tell them the book is called glory for me yeah actually i have a copy i cracked it open one day and was kind of put off by the fact that it was a verse and i think i i closed it again but <clears throat> Uh, obviously, uh, the uh, title of the movie was not Glory for Me. I think uh, it has the perfect title. And of course, it's taken from a line of dialogue that uh, Fred's wife, Marie, says at one point in the story. You know, they, they get into a big fight and she's upset with him because he can't find a job. And she says, I gave you the best years of my life. And it's funny because when you talk to a lot there of people- was, Can I just yeah. ju jump in here? There's sure. actually a contest to come up with the title. Um, and I never really was able to determine which came first, the line in the script or that it was the, the new title. The new title sort of started being put on all of the um, production reports around March of 46. Um, and it was sort of a throwaway on this list of, you know, possible titles from New York after they had had this contest. The prize was $50 to the employee of the Goldwyn, you know, company who could come up with the title. And I don't know, my husband said to me when he's really early dressed, he's like, you never say who won. I'm like, I couldn't figure out who won. I'm not sure they really <laughs> gave that money away. Knowing Goldwyn, he probably did it. Um, but yeah, so anyway, just to clear that up. Now the, um, and the other one of the reasons, obviously, I love the movie is because it opened the door to returning veterans in the story yeah. I'd never seen before. The other thing was just I've always been interested in uh, the way Hollywood looked in post-war World mm. War II, post-World War II, early, actually late 1940s. And <clears throat> you get a feeling, again, this is Weiler pumping in the details, you get to see what a drugstore looked like in 1946. You get to see uh, <clears throat> a bank and you see uh, a banquet um, and you see how there, there's, di there's different class structure here. Al obviously is part of the country club set. Mm -hmm. You know, they're well-to-do. Fred can't get a job. He goes back to visit his parents who live... <laughs> I think squalor would kind of uh, be be apt here. Uh, yeah. I think my sense is, um, and in looking at where they shot that sequence where they have the um, the dairy house, it looks like it's under the Sixth Street Bridge in downtown Los Angeles. Yeah, and it's just not a great place. And then of course Homer lives in a in a little house uh, with his parents and his his. Um, his childhood sweetheart, uh, Wilma, lives next door. And those houses look like any street in America. And that's another thing about this. Even though it takes place in a fictional city called Boone City, I think, mm -hmm. I think in reading your book, the feeling was it was Michigan. Is that accurate? Cincinnati. Cincinnati. It was, yeah, that was, that was what they put out in the press kit. Um, but a lot of the you know, montage scenes were shot in Los Angeles. Although there is um, an aerial shot of, um, I think it's Walnut Hills High School. A friend of mine who hadn't seen the movie until, you know, my book came out and he's like, oh my God, that's my high school, you know, and, and did some background. And so there, it's, a, it's an amalgamation of- um, And where would Walnut Hills High School be? Um, in, I believe it's in Cincinnati or outside okay. of Cincinnati, a suburb outside, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, the press kit was work, you know, worked well, over time. It, it's so interesting because they arrive back and they're immediately in a taxi cab and Weiler gives us a, a little kind of a, a montage of what life is like in a modern 1946 town. Mm -hmm. And uh, the hot rod drives by <laughs> and the kids in it and you see hot dog stands and women walking. It's, it's uh, kind of fast and furious. And I love the little moment where um, I think uh, Homer asked the cab driver how, how the beavers are doing, which right, of course right. is the local, <laughs> and they're in seventh place and Fred <laughs> chimes in, still second division. And you get a feeling of these guys are integrating themselves back into normalcy where they're asking about a baseball team. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just, um, I love the way it opens. And I have to say that part of the reason this movie works so well for me is Hugo Friedhofer's music. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I just, you know, I'm a big collector of film music. I've always loved the score for, uh, for the best years of our lives. And those of you who are listening who like good film music, this is a good score. Yeah, it is. And it, he wasn't the first choice. You know, Bernard Herrmann was uh, who Goldwyn went to first, and he was otherwise engaged. And I think today people might know Herman more for, you know, Psycho and, and that kind of more contemporary sounding music. But at the time, he, Herman was known for doing, you know, more orchestral type scores. And so it was, he was a logical choice in some way. Um, but uh, Friedhofer worked, even though, you know, in the beginning, um, Weiler, Weiler didn't seem to like the score um, and it took a while and I really and I write about this in the book and I really think it's in part because he you know had trouble with his hearing and there's probably a very good chance that it just he could not distinguish among you know the different notes and tones and so um, you know, I write about that in the book too, how their house had been a house full of music. And after his injury, that kind of stopped because it just, he couldn't hear the music. It was painful for him. I um, mean, and, the idea of a film director of his caliber, who probably before his, his hearing loss, listened to things with more than a fine tooth ear. Right. Uh, for him not to be able to hear properly, uh, it's astounding, it's astounding to think that he could carry on, but, um, he was smart. He was a smart director. Uh, I've, I've followed his career for many years. I remember, God, I, I remember one of my early books that I actually had to abandon. I was writing a book called the historical films of Charlton Heston. Ooh. And I actually got Mr. Heston interested in it at one point. He actually <laughs> invited me out to universal on the set of Grey Lady Down, that submarine movie. Mm -hmm. And I was transcribing one of his diaries, which uh, happened to be, uh, actually, I think it was, yeah, I think it was Ben-Hur, of course, which he worked with Weiler, one of Weiler's masterworks. And um, I've, always, I, I, I've always found his films a cut above everyone's, as everyone found out. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the cast, because the, the you know, we can talk about Weiler's vision and the great music and the great script and the great story material. But for my money, this was just a wonderful, charismatic cast. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that 
uh, everybody just pops. Let's talk a little bit about Dana Andrews. Can you tell me a little bit about what you thought he brought to the role? You know, so many people have sort of reached out on Twitter lately and said, because it's, you know, Dana Andrews is the star of the month right now um, in turn on TCM. And like, he was robbed. Why didn't he get, you know, any nominations for this? Um, he did get a Golden Apple Award in 1946, um, which I think was an award given out by the Women's Press Association in Hollywood. I don't know. That, that kind of made me laugh. Um, he just, you know, with his ability to, he's funny one minute, minute and then he sort of pulls it all in, you know, he's, he's, I don't want to say he's a mask, but he's, he's very internal in a lot of scenes, um, which comes across, especially in the scene where, you know, he, Fred confronts him at Butch's about, uh, you know, being with his daughter. And there's just that great, the camera's moving on and off axis to, to bring, you know, give us tension and then give us relief. Um, you see his jaw in profile, just kind of hardened. And he just, he's so good with the different mannerisms. Um, I think he's a great match for somebody like Frederick March in this movie. Um, and in turn, I think, you know, Harold Russell then, um, you mentioned, you know, the charisma that these actors bring. I mean, I think Harold Russell brings an openness in his face that's really important and sort of, you know, works as a, a um, both a contrast and maybe even a compliment to, to the other two male actors, main actors in this. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, Dana Andrews is great and, and he had just had such success with Laura and you know, audiences knew him from that and he comes into this and it's, he brings both kind of a, I don't want to say he's threatening because I don't think that's necessarily true, but there is something there, a tension that he brings, but also oh. a romanticism. Well, attention of frustration because you can see in Fred's whole body that he wants to be a success for a woman his wife, who is, is, is obviously the wrong choice for him in so many ways. I have to say that Virginia Mayo, who we know for a, in a lot of Danny Kaye movies, she was obviously a very vivacious actress who, mm -hmm. who always played uh, very big screen and, and sexy. Uh, she was quite a contrast to everybody else in the picture. And I guess it was kind of a surprise to get her in that role because she was not considered of that caliber of the actors and yes, did a wonderful performance. Well, and you have to keep in mind too that, you know, some, they were contract players for Goldwyn. So, I mean, there's, you know, a method there. I mean, I'm not saying he just pulled anybody in, but, you know, there is a reason that some of them were in the movie. And she always said, you know, I won Weiler his Oscar because no one expected Virginia Mayo to be able to pull off Kind of a dramatic role. Right. Um, and she's got a lot of comedic beats, but you know there are that <clears throat> that scene. Going back to what we were talking about, you said you sense the frustration in Dana Andrews' character, um, but there I think there is menace too in the scenes with him and Marie as their marriage really starts to fall apart. There's just they're in that small apartment. And that was another thing, you know, shooting this 
with Greg Toland and, and doing the ceiling sets and really trying to create the realism, not just through acting, but through how the sets looked, um, how the rooms looked, I think was very important into capturing the, um, the moods in, in some of these scenes uh, between the characters. Yeah, uh, we shouldn't uh, uh, underestimate the value of Greg Tolan as a filmmaker. I mean, he did a, a little film a few years earlier called Citizen Kane, right. which mm -hmm. certainly is one of the uh, great films of all time and, and so innovative. Um, it's, it's funny because being exposed to this film and actors like Myrna Loy and Frederick March, who I was not that familiar with, I caught this film a little earlier than you did, probably more in the 70s, mm -hmm. but I, I had not seen the Thin Man series. I wasn't familiar with Myrna Loy, uh, but uh, her relationship with Frederick March, and they're, they're a little bit subordinate to, the, you know, to uh, uh, Homer and Fred, but no less uh, important to the story and they they really their scenes just have a resonance to them and it's funny because fred uh, excuse me uh al brings a little comedy to the story which i think was needed especially when he's drunk <laughs> oh my gosh yeah that sort of slapstick moments or series of moments with him myrna loy flipping him over you know using his pajama sleeve i mean it's just <laughs> it really is terrific and um one of the things for Weiler I think I write about this in the book you know there was a moment where he said we have to keep each of these stories alive so he and Sherwood were very attentive to the fact that there were multiple stories being juggled and you know you had to keep the viewer engaged with the different stories now I argue like that's an element of Weiler's, you know, democraticness as a director and that he sort of gives us multiple characters that we can, we have our choice, you know, um, to who, who to identify with. And, you know, I always think of something one of my film professors said, um, the historian Tom Schatz, who says, you know, as you get older, your identification often shifts. And so you may identify with a younger character when you're younger and that may shift as you get older. And I think that this film gives us, you know, it, it, it allows us as viewers to move around among these characters, um, which is really fun to do. And, you know, for myself, my own viewing, I've definitely come to have more compassion for Marie, for instance, than I did say as a, you know, young, 20 something when I first saw this movie. Um, nah, I don't have any compassion for her. I think she's a shrew. <laughs> I mean, she's well, hanging out with Cliff Scully, Steve Cochran. <laughs> Steve Cochran, who, who talk about menace. Steve I Cochran. love that scene where she she's like, but you know, I mean, this film does an interesting job of, of you know, what the women's roles, how the women were not only just sort of, you know, had limitations, but were being pushed back into some of those roles as the men came home. And I love where she's sitting with her legs over the side of the chair. And, you know, he, uh, Fred says, you know, we're staying in tonight. And she's basically, it's like, shit. And she takes off her false <laughs> eyelashes. I love that. Yeah, this is a nightclub girl who loves the nightlife. It's, they yeah. are so, they are so mismatched. And uh, I, uh, but getting back to Fred and Millie, um, one of my favorite scenes, as I told you when I first talked to you, is the, um, the, the uh, 
uh, what do we call it? The uh, country club tribute scene to Fred oh, yeah. coming back from the war where he has to give a speech and Millie's very worried because Fred has been downing one uh, shot Al, of liquor. Al, yeah. I'm sorry, Alice is, is, is taking one shot of liquor after another. And I love that scene. I'm not going to spoil it for the listeners because it's it's too good a scene to spoil, but it just, it, the, the look on... Um, on some of the faces of the characters is just priceless. Uh, this this movie, by the way, is filled with recognizable faces who we're not sure who they are. Um, uh, the guy who plays uh, Al's boss, Ray Collins, mm-hmm. we've seen him in a million things. Uh, he's um, he's very interesting. He's kind of you know he wants he wants Al to come back to work. And in fact, he calls the apartment. And uh, he t- and Al gets off the phone and looks at Millie and and says, uh, you know, they want to be back at the bank. And what is she? She says, well, no, you should take a vacation. You you deserve it. You've been at war for three years. And right. he has that great line. Well, got to make money. Last year mm-hmm. it was kill Japs. This year it's make money. Yeah. Oh my God, does that say what uh, that kind of in a nutshell talks about how these guys had to disengage? And this is. This is true of any man in war. I think you reference in the book, uh, going back to current films like The Hurt Locker, where you've got Jeremy Renner's character in a supermarket after he's come back from the Middle East. He's trying to buy cereal. He's standing there with 10,000 boxes of cereal. He has no idea which one to get. Reintroducing oneself to like modern life or just life is very challenging. Um, You know, when um, one of the first events I had for the book was a screening here in Austin at the Austin Film Society, and um, a gentleman came up afterward, you know, I was signing books, and he had never seen the movie before, and he had been in Afghanistan, he just read about it in the paper, and he came and he saw it, and it really moved him, and it was so exciting, you know, to meet someone who was seeing it for the first time who had that experience and and this film still spoke to him in a way you know I just I find that amazing and and part of its power um sure and and I do think it's that you know I use the Hurt Locker as an example because I think it's that sense of when Fred walks into the drugstore and it is just so overwhelming with the signs and the products and everything and it's the same sense in the grocery store with the choice you know and in 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 reading your book and for those who are listening it's called the making of the best years of our lives it's just a fine book i was surprised how the movie was suddenly caught up in the house un-american activities committee branding it as communist propaganda, which I found shocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that a little surprise for you as well? No, I mean, I had, you know, I, I, I knew a lot about this film because I taught it for so long, but I mean, really seeing the depth of, of how it became involved in the HUAC um, hearings, you know, that I went through and just sifted through, um, the files at the Margaret Herrick Library and, you know, really got to chart that through. And and when you look at some of the critical reviews, there weren't a lot of reviews that were critical of the movie, but there were some, and you just start to see that sense. There were attacks, people who very much knew um, 
that Robert Sherwood was the screenwriter and that, you know, what his politics were and they would, they blamed him, you know, oh, here goes Sherwood pontificating again. You know, there was this sense, oh, okay. So there's a little bit of a backlash here about the politics. Um, so I sensed that as I read through, I mean, I could see that happening in say the spring of 47 even. Um, and the hearings wouldn't happen until October of that year, really. Well, I mean, the, the actual hearings were held then, but, but you know, people getting visits um, from members of the committee was happening earlier, so. I mean, at first blush, the movie seems to be very free of political discussion, except for that one sequence at the uh, lunch counter in Fred's drugstore when he, mm -hmm. he Homer is, uh, confronts that gentleman who claims that the war was fought for the wrong, the wrong war yeah yeah and I, I was interested to find out in your book uh that uh there was a line in that original dialogue where he actually makes an anti-semitic remark and says it was the jews and it seems to me at that time 1946 it still was very difficult to say the word jew in a movie well, and that was a direct reference to an experience Weiler had had. You know, he he had been um, severely reprimanded. He was in uniform and he had punched somebody who had made a derogatory remark about someone who had cut in line at a taxi stand uh, during the war. And he like turned to Weiler and sort of just said, oh, you know, that Jew or something. And Weiler said, I'm a Jew and punched him. And he was in uniform. And um, that definitely kept Weiler from receiving certain um, commendations beyond his air medal. Um, um, and so he brought that experience somewhat into the film. And in the end, they, you know, the, the Breen office was sort of like, you can't have that word, that phrase in there. And they kept it in. They shot many different versions, some with, some without Jew Lover in there. And um, eventually, it wasn't in the final film. Um, but yeah, there, there, was, there was a sense, you know, I think there was a mood happening. And I think Weiler and Sherwood were very aware of it and wanted to capture some of that in the movie. Allison, uh, you've read Glory for Me. Mm -hmm. Is there a scene in the original Cantor book where... Uh, Homer confronts someone in a diner or was that created based on Weiler's experience? Um, gosh, I can't remember something similar. It wouldn't be identical to that because that really was infused by Weiler's experience, but it's been a while since I've read that. Um, well, one of the most- I mean, it, yeah. there are certain scenes, definitely certain moments in the book that definitely, you know, wedding, all of that, that made its way into the movie for sure. Fred's wandering in the airplane graveyard, which has become kind of the iconic image of the movie. Yeah. Was that in the uh, Cantor book that you can recall? Hmm. I don't think so because, but again, you know, it's been, it's been years since I read that oh, book. Sure. Um, well, for, for me personally, being fascinated with World War II aircraft, the immediate image of hundreds of brand new bombers and aircraft fighters being dismantled for prefabricated housing needs, I found fascinating. And it's almost, I almost wish I'd been on a field with all of that firepower. It was just amazing to me that it was all being destroyed. I think Fred has a line in the cockpit of that plane or the, the nose of the plane at the beginning where 
Uh, I've never, Homer uh, says, I've never seen so many planes. And Fred says they're junking them from, yeah. the, from, the, uh, from the assembly line to the scrap heap. Just mm -hmm. so interesting, all that stuff being destroyed because we no longer needed 10,000 bombers because we weren't bombing anybody. You know, there was a, um, in my research, I was, I think it was in Life Magazine, there was this picture of that essentially, you know, a bomber graveyard like that. And on the other side began an article by um, Bill Malton, the Stars and Stripes correspondent, the cartoonist. I just thought that was so fascinating that, you know, it was back to back, you know, and he had gone to, um, I think a conference of veterans and was sort of, you know, one of the things was for some of the returning veterans was there were so many, there's so much attention to World War I veterans. And so one of the issues for veterans, you know, one of the things that Harold Russell worked on was trying to get attention paid and benefits for these quote unquote new veterans, um, you know, and that it, it, they had to be a shift. Okay, we have new veterans coming in. We need to make sure that they're, um, they receive the benefits they deserve as well. Um, so that, that was a reminder to me like, oh yeah, you know, there were all these other sort of um, bureaucratic issues that had to be dealt with um, behind the scenes. Well, all of Harold's efforts on behalf of veterans is very interesting for me personally, because right now I'm involved in a potential TV miniseries on the life of Audie Murphy. Oh, yeah. And wow. Audie, Audie Murphy, who on the surface was Mr. You know, sweet face, nice guy, you know, the hero of World War II. Nobody and I, I would say nobody knew he was suffering from massive PTSD. He kept it. The studio kept it quiet. He was under contract to Universal for many years. And uh, he was, I guess, along with Harold one of the first to go before Congress to mm -hmm. lobby more mental health for returning veterans because it was dismissed, as you know, as shell shock or, you know, uh, that kind of thing that seemed to be temporary, but it wasn't. Yeah. Um, no, it's very, very interesting subject. So let me ask you a question. Uh, you've seen the movie as probably as many times as I've seen the movie. Do you have a favorite scene? Um, I have, if this is not a contradiction, several favorite scenes. Um, it's, I think my two biggies are um, the soda um, fountain scene, mm -hmm. um, in part because my father was disabled and to, there are some moments, I think it was not in first viewing, not maybe even in fifth viewing, but there was a moment where it occurred to me that what Homer was doing, like there's a moment where I see Harold Russell, where he turns to um, uh, the, the customer at the counter, you know, oh, Ray, Ray feel Teal. him. Yes, where he can feel him. I'm trying to remember the character's name, Mollet, where he can feel him looking at him. And he's talking to Fred and he kind of finishes that conversation and he pivots and he looks at him and he says, hi, how are you? And in that moment for me that I see every person with a disability and what they have to do, like the burden is on them to make things comfortable in a social interaction. Um, and so that's one reason I love that scene because I think it's 
you know, we talk about realness and authenticity. I think that is totally laid out in that. Was scene. your was your father disabled from a war injury? No, no, it was late in life. Um, it was a, a rare disease called Guillain-Barre, and he was um, in his late forties. I was in college when it happened. Um, oh. And so, you know, I watched him having to kind of, you know, relearn how to exist in the world and, you know, relearn how to drive and all of that. So anyway, that scene has, um, it's very rich and layered for me. And then there's the scene with Homer and Wilma from the kitchen oh, to sure. the bedroom. And I just love that because I think so much is going on there. There's, and, you know, I start the book with the filming of that scene because, you know, is it horror? Is it film noir? Is it romance? You know, what's happening there? It's very, there's just a lot going on. And um, it's funny I, because I love that scene. What, one of the emotions that seems to be so prevalent in this movie is frustration. Yeah. Everybody seems to be frustrated in a certain way. Al is frustrated that, uh, you know, he's feeling uncomfortable being a banker when everybody else is barely surviving. Fred's frustrated that he can't find a job. His wife's frustrated that he can't find a job. Uh, Al, uh, Millie is frustrated that Al is so uncomfortable. And uh, of course- And that uh, he's drinking. <laughs> and he's drinking heavily. And, Her and uh, Homer, fr frustrated, can't get his life back together. But probably the most frustrated person in the whole movie is Wilma, because she just wants to love the man she loves and she won't let him close. These are all very, very important emotional moments that for me seeing this for the first time, I just just really completely embraced the movie so much so that I put the whole movie on audio tape and, I, and after college, I would just play it as I was going to sleep, hearing that beautiful Sherwood dialogue. Mm. And um, it's still, I, I hear, it's so funny, you'd laugh because whenever I'm in a, in a parking structure with good acoustics, I always play, I always, excuse me, I always whistle Fred's theme, oh, which yeah. is that wonderful theme that he's, they play when he's going to the apartment building and he can't get in. Mm -hmm. and it's, mm -hmm. it's just so funny. Another, another moment where you're dealing with just normal life. How do you get into an apartment building that has a buzzer? And uh, I love that. And um, the way that scene plays out, like, especially when, when, Peggy brings him back the next morning and it's just there's like we're waiting you know I mean the camera stays with her and we're watching and we're waiting and what's going to happen and I just love the way you know Weiler doesn't rush some of those I love the fact that you like just went to sleep listening to the soundtrack, including dialogue of this movie. I find that just so fascinating. Oh yeah, no, I, I I'm a little bit of a nut. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you a question. Uh, what are what's going to be your next book? I don't know. I have got a couple of ideas. I'm actually I've been starting to work on what may be um, a making of of George Cukor's The Women. I'm oh. sort of interested in that because I think it offers a snapshot of female power in the studio system, you know, with so many women, Claire Booth Luce, you know, having written the Broadway smash that it was based on. So there's that. And also um, Cukor, 
you know, as a homosexual in Hollywood, um, depending on which biographer you believe, you know, he either just, you know, led his life as he led it, um, or he led a double life. I tend to believe the former, um, but I think that, that, and also the film came out in Hollywood's greatest year, 1939. So I think there's a lot there. Um, one of the obstacles, of course, is that MGM's archives, you know, aren't, there's stuff that's missing and they're not in all one place. So that is a challenge um, to begin with. But I think, I think there's promise there. There's also a contemporary biography I'm thinking about, um, about a woman in the film industry. Um, she's sort of a well-known collaborator. That's all I'll say. And um, that project I've, I've been wanting to do for a good two decades. Um, so you're, you're a professor at U, U, U of T? I was, I was, um, yeah. I mean, I have my PhD and I, I, I plan to do that, but um, I think midway through getting that degree, I just realized I didn't want to go into academia full time. And mm -hmm. I had actually the same month I started my PhD, I had the opportunity to be a film critic here in Austin. So I did both um, while I was getting my PhD. And um, when I graduated, I was teaching part-time and I was writing part-time and I was like, well, why don't I just keep doing this? It seems to be working. And so in 2013, though, it became harder and harder to sort of do the teaching just with the way, you know, the, the, the obstacles of being an adjunct. It became much harder to be an adjunct um, and, you know, sort of do other things. So I stepped away from teaching then um, and that's actually turned to ghostwriting in addition to working on my own stuff. Hmm. Um, and so I've been doing that for a while, um, but I did go back into the classroom last fall to teach at my old department, which was, <laughs> oh my God, that was hard, but it was really fun. I did contemporary, um, a contemporary horror film class, which was- a really Oh my God, what a subject. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and um, my students were really thrilled to be back in person. We were all masked. It was it was work. It was hard, but um, so I'm really you, glad. So did you did you consult with Joe Bob Briggs on on the format? <laughs> no, I mean my first book. You know, I wrote about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so I'm I'm good there. Um, so that was one of the films. But I actually started with Psycho. I wanted to take the students through. You know start with modern horror and we went all the way up to a film called Relic that came out in 2020. Um, terrific film basically about dementia, um, all women in it and uh, yeah so I think we had a good time. Well you certainly have an eclectic interest. Um, for, those of, uh, for those of you who are listening we've been talking to Allison Maycor about her wonderful book the making of the best years of our lives. And if you haven't seen the movie, as I said earlier, find it, love it as we all do, and then pick up Allison's book because it is a, it is your guide to the deep underpinnings of this movie. And I applaud you for your forensic research, but even more so, I applaud you for your writing style. It's very readable and fun. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I I had some good mentors when I was in school, you know, who 
showed me that you didn't have to sort of write in a traditional academic dry style. And so I, I you know, I'm a big fan of authors like Mark Harris and Glenn Frankel and, you know, who write basically narrative nonfiction. And that's what I try to do with my books. Well, you've done it quite successfully. Thank well, you. everyone, another, another episode. Another of, Saturday night. Another Saturday night has passed. And uh, we've really enjoyed speaking with you, Allison. And good fortune to you. And every time I watch the best years of our lives again, I, I certainly think of you as we, as, as we enjoy just this wonderful movie. And um, good luck again to everything you do. Thank you so much, Stephen. When I watch it, I'm going to be thinking of you going to sleep, listening to that. <laughs> uh, you've been listening to Steve Rubin Saturday Night at the Movies on the Lock 22 Network. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. Again, our wonderful guest has been Allison Maycor. Good night, everyone.